Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for leading us so well in those uh, hymns of praise. And uh, really that sets us up for today's sermon. Uh, today's sermon is called No Greater Battle. As we continue in this series uh, called No Greater, we arrive at the point in the journey through this Passion Week where Jesus prays in Gethsemane. So we're going to turn to Matthew 26 again uh, and really follow on from where we were last week. Matthew 26 and verse 36 right through to verse 46. Matthew 26 verse 36. And this is God's word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest uh, later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's just pray together. Lord, in these moments we are very conscious uh, as we see this account of the Lord Jesus Christ and his uh, agony in the garden that it is hard for us to comprehend fully what he is going through. But we pray this morning that by your spirit we will know something of the battle that he had there in prayer and that by his actions and the actions of the disciples that we may learn much this morning of ourselves. So we come to you humbly asking that you will teach us Lord, that you would use your spirit in us or convict us of our sin and speak into our lives, we pray in these moments. So help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Grief. 
They're not my words. They are the words of Isaiah. 700 years before this garden scene. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words. But it would not be the first time. That Jesus had been sorrowful. Or acquainted with grief. Jesus being Jesus. Well, he experienced the fullness uh, of sorrow uh, in ways in which we can never experience. We can only feel our own sorrow and something of the sorrow of someone else as they express it outwardly. But Jesus, well, he not only absorbed the outwardly expressed sorrow of all people, but the sorrow that was found deep in their hearts. Having said this, however much sorrow and grief experienced or absorbed in his life, I believe that he never experienced as much sorrow in his life up to this point. That this really was the pinnacle uh, so far in his life of this sorrow and grief as he uh, was in the garden. In these moments, Jesus goes into battle, as do his disciples. That may not be initially very obvious, but that is what is happening here. It has been said that actually the account of Jesus in, in these moments was the account of Jesus' final temptation. His final temptation. So let's look at this together this morning. And I want to look at Jesus' battle. And I want to work through the story and the account and and see Jesus' battle. And then I want to go back and see the disciples' battle. So we see these two things uh, this morning. So let's look at Jesus' battle to begin with. They had finished the Last Supper, which we looked at last week, last Sunday morning. And now it was late in the evening or very early in the morning on the Friday on which Jesus would die. He would be crucified that same day. Jesus and the 11 disciples arrive at Gethsemane, the 11 disciples, because Judas had already gone. He'd already gone to the authorities. He had already left that supper, and he had gone to do his dirty deed. He had gone to betray or fulfill his betrayal of Jesus by going to the chief priests and the elders in the temple. And on entering the garden, Jesus instructs eight of the disciples to sit down while he go and pray. Verse 36. It's interesting, isn't it? Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. But what he was doing, he was talking to, at that moment, eight of the eleven. And then, as we know, he took uh, with him Three disciples. Now named in Matthew, they are Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. But we know, if we look at all of the accounts, uh, we know that the other two were James and John. So we have Peter, James, and John. And they were brought with Jesus uh, to see Jesus Final temptation. In verse 37, we see that. And taking him, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be 
sorrowful and troubled. And these words are interesting, aren't they? The word troubled could be translated uh, astonished. And you may say, well, that doesn't sound the sort of word that Jesus would have experienced uh, in the garden. But actually, this astonishment was, uh, was very real for Jesus in these very moments. And you say, well, how was Jesus astonished? Was he astonished at the blindness of Israel, which we looked at uh, three weeks ago? You know, as he came into the city, they did not know why really they were worshipping Jesus. They wanted him to be their king that would overrule and reign in Israel and free them from the uh, bondage of the Roman Empire. Well, was it the wickedness of Judas? He knows, he knows now that he has gone to uh, bring those who would capture him. Was it that? Was it the knowledge that the disciples were going to betray him? Was it knowing uh, of what was to come in the next few hours, in that next morning? Was it the pain, the whipping, the spit, the crown of thorns? Was it the cross? Well, the answer to all of these questions is yes. But it's so much more. It's more than all this. I believe it was that Jesus knew that he would experience something that he had never experienced before. He would experience something he had never experienced before. That in a few hours, he would be the sin bearer of the world. He will experience what it is to be sin. And will know what it is and what it feels like to experience the full cup of God's wrath on him. And to be forsaken by his own father. This was not just a physical battle, but a spiritual one. Jesus' sorrow was so that it was deadly. It was deadly. That's what he says there, doesn't he? In verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. What does this mean? Well, It's a sorrow that is almost paralytic. To the point in Jesus' human nature, remembering this morning as we go through, that he is fully God and he is fully man. That in his human nature as man, he reacts to such sorrow in the sense that This deadly sorrow could keep him from the cross. Every fiber of Jesus' human flesh is working to to avoid such pain and anguish. You say, really? Is this the Jesus that we worship? Is this what I knew of Jesus before? Well, look, which one of you would like to face that sort of pain 
and that crucifixion. And therefore, if we put ourselves in that place, in that position, thinking about what was to come, that impending pain and suffering and, and, and death in his flesh, who would stand to do that? And then, therefore, it is easy to draw the uh, assumption and the conclusion that Jesus also, in his humanity, did not want that either. And in these moments, it would seem that Satan himself is present. In Matthew, we don't see any of this, but in Luke 22 and 53, and you can turn there if you want to. In Luke 22 and 53, it says this, But this is the hour, or your hour, and the power of the darkness. It's the hour of the power of the darkness. You see, Satan's aim from the beginning was not to send Jesus to the cross, but to keep him from it. His aim from the beginning was not to send him there, but it was to keep him from it. You know, think back to the wilderness temptations. Jesus fasts for 40 days. Satan tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread. He took Jesus to the top of the temple and he told him to throw himself down. And, he, and finally, Satan tells Jesus that the nations, they would be his. If only he would what? He would bow to him. And in Matthew 16, Jesus tells the disciples all about the things that are going to happen to him in Jerusalem, his death at the hands of sinners. But Peter, he pulls him to the side. It literally says that. He pulls him to one side. And do you know what he says to him? Never, Lord. Never, Lord. And then Jesus, in response to Peter's statement, says this. Get behind me, Satan. Satan was at work in the words of Peter. And Peter, by affirming to him that he would never go to the cross, Jesus then knew that this was Satan himself trying to persuade the fleshly nature of Jesus to not go there. Satan was never... Uh, looking to send Jesus to the cross because he knew what he would accomplish at the cross, but to always keep him from it. It was to spoil the plans of the crucifixion of Christ. If Jesus didn't make it to the cross, well then hell would be the only place for eternal life. Heaven would be empty. Hell would be full. Satan would have conquered and he would be sovereign. Well, here for Jesus, his flesh desires not to experience the impending agony and pain. 
He had the same flesh as we do. Just as, just as we know uh, our flesh and, and how sinful it is and how easily uh, it is marred and, 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 and broken. He was very God but very man. The word wrapped in flesh, he experienced the sorrow and the pain that we do. But at the same time, he was very God. And so, going a little further, as it says here in verse 39, or in the other accounts, a stone's throw, he fell on his face and prayed. He fell on his face and prayed. And here's a statement from Leon Morris. So we've used Leon Morris before as a, as a, uh, a person who we can quote from, as an excellent New Testament scholar. He said this, He fell face downward. An expression that means that Jesus adopted the lowliest posture for this very significant prayer. And here then we have Jesus' first request in prayer in verse 39. He said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What is this cup? What is this cup that Jesus talks about? Well, I believe it is, uh, is, about what, is about what is about to happen in the next number of hours. That in the next 18 to 20 hours, all that is going to happen to Jesus is something of that cup that we see and we read of here. It is the pinnacle of that cup. When the Father justly shows his full extent of his wrath on his own son. Jesus will know what it is to experience the full cup of God's wrath. Not half of the cup, but the entire thing, including the dregs at the bottom. And in Jesus' ordinary human sinless nature, and in his distaste for pain, asks, is there another way? He cries out in loud cries, is there another way? Can this cup pass without me drinking it? If it can't, I will do it. But can it? Jesus' first strategy in battle is asking if there could be another way than drinking this cup. And Luke tells us of Christ's extreme anguish at this point. As sweat drops of blood pour from his head. And what this is, is an indication. And there is a medical term of it. You can ask Chris afterwards. He probably won't know what it is. But it's some long name that I couldn't even write down. Because I couldn't even pronounce it. But there's a, there is a, a, a medical term. And what it is, it shows that at this point... There is an indication that Jesus was facing the most extreme uh, feeling of stress. And that is why this blood is pouring from the pores of his body. Let me just draw an application just at this point. Jesus faced uh, the greatest of temptations, yet he turns to God. He faces at this moment the greatest 
uh, of temptations uh, and the most sorrowful and the most agonizing moment in his life to this point. Yet he turns to his father. Abba, father. My father. Jesus, mighty and powerful, sovereign Jesus, turns to God in prayer. Well, if he does it, if he needs to turn in those moments where we are tempted to do something of the flesh, where our flesh is telling us we should do it, but we know we shouldn't do it, and it does not accomplish what God wants for us in our life, how much more do we need to turn to him in prayer? When we are faced with our Gethsemane, what is our reaction? Well, after praying, Jesus returns to the three disciples. That's what it says there. It doesn't say three necessarily, but we know it's those three who he brought with him. He came back in verse, uh, verse 40 to the disciples and he found them sleeping. He found them sleeping. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But then he comes back to pray a second time in verse 42. In verse 42, again for a second time, he went away and prayed. Well, this is interesting here, isn't it? This time his prayer, although it seems a repeat of the first, is very different. The first prayer Jesus prayed that the cup would pass without him having to drink it. He desired to have the victory over sin and death without tasting the cup. That was what we saw in the first. But now, Jesus is saying that he will drink it for the victory. That's what it says there. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. I will drink this cup for the victory. But he's going to need the father's help. He's going to need the Father's help to accomplish the Father's will. And my question here is, what happened between the first prayer and the second prayer? You say, well, he went to the disciples and saw them sleeping, and he just came back. I'm not sure whether that moment would have changed from that agonizing prayer he had at the beginning to this prayer of willingness. You say, well, he's Jesus. He is. But turn to Luke 22 and 43. Luke 22 and 43. This is what it says. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. An angel. Appeared from heaven. We do not know what the angel said. But we could have a guess. Uh, maybe he said, Your father is not going to, he's not going to say yes to your first prayer. The answer to that request is no. 
But what we do know is that in some miraculous way, that angelic being strengthened Jesus in his lowest moment. Turn to Hebrews 5 and 7. Hebrews 5 and 7. This is what it says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And, even, and he was heard because of his reverence. Well, how does this apply? Well, you might read this and say, well, God didn't save him. He didn't save him from death, right? Let me ask you this question here. And listen to this question carefully because it's a bit of a head melter. Well, what if the way that Jesus wanted to be saved from death was by dying? What if the way that Jesus wanted to be saved from death was by dying? See, there are two ways in which Jesus wants to be saved from death here. Firstly, the fear and the sorrow of death coming from his human nature could persuade him off of the road to the cross. And if that happened, he didn't and he didn't make it to the cross. His life would be destroyed if he lived. Secondly, he knew that when he dies, he would not stay dead. He would not stay dead. He would not stay in the grave. But the father who would uh, raise him on the third day. And death and sin will be defeated forever. So everything we read in, in Hebrews 5 and 7 is absolutely true. And so Jesus in his second prayer and the third prayer in verse 44. Willingly holds the cup of which he will drink in just a few short hours. The most horrible test that anybody has ever faced. All the while resting on his father. In that when he does enter death. He trusts his father to raise him again. Therefore Jesus wins the battle. He wins the battle. In these moments in prayer. And now we turn to the disciples. The disciples battle. Eight of the disciples are left on the other side of the garden and Jesus doesn't even ask them to pray. If you turn back to the account in Matthew 26, he doesn't even ask them to pray. He just says, sit here. Just sit here and wait. Meanwhile, he takes Peter, James and John with him. Jesus was about to teach them, Peter, James and John, a very important lesson. However, they would learn the lesson by failing miserably. You ever learned a lesson better by, by failing at something? Well, in verse 38, Jesus tells them to remain here. But not only just to remain here, but to what? To watch with me. To watch with me. Be vigilant, on guard. They, there are serious evil forces at work here tonight. So Jesus, going a stone's throw beyond them, gets to battle. 
And as we've already seen, crying out loud, as we read in Hebrews 5 and 7, in anguished prayer, there is no doubt that they heard him, these three. Then he returns to the three disciples in verse 40. And he finds them sleeping. He says, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray. That you may not enter into temptation. Why or what is he saying to them? Well, this time Jesus doesn't ask the disciples just to watch. But he now asks them to pray. You see, the disciples had in front of them their greatest test The greatest test that they would have faced in their lives is impending in the next moments. You see, in verse 31 of this same chapter, just look down your page and read the the verse with me. It says this, Then Jesus said to the disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. But the response of Peter and his disciples was that they would die. Before they deny him. No way are we going to fall away. We are going to follow you all the way to the cross. We're going to go with you every step of the way. And we will die. Before we give up on you. Well we know the story. Jesus knew the temptation. For them to fall away was very real. And very present. Jesus knew in just a few moments. The disciples allegiance to him would be tested. And they would come under great temptation. To to depart. But here. They uh, should be battling, but they're sleeping. When they should be fighting, they are fading. They are weary and idle and inactive disciples in these very moments in which they should be battling in prayer so that they would not fall into temptation. And Jesus said this, doesn't he? He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 41. I believe here, this not only was said to warn the disciples about their own physical flesh, but he was joining them in this reality that his, also his flesh, in ways was weak. Wanting to avoid this death and agony at all costs. But overriding that, his will was willing to uh, submit to God's. Quite amazing, isn't it? They willed to committing themselves to Christ all the way to the cross, but a time was fast approaching when that commitment would be seriously tested. So Jesus, going away to pray for a second time, returns to the three in verse 43, and he finds them, what? Sleeping. Yet again, they're sleeping. And Matthew puts a small thing in here just to tell us why they were, because their eyes were heavy. It's the middle of the night. They are weary Uh, And they are tired. But Jesus sees it as another opportunity wasted. Because of their weariness. Their test was coming close. And they were sleeping. The disciples approach to temptation. Or lack of. Showed itself clearly in the end didn't it? The result of their lack of prayer against temptation is seen in their response in verse 56. We're going to look at this again tonight. But let's read this, verse 56 of this chapter 26 in Matthew. It says this. 
Then all the disciples left him and fled. How devastating must it have been for Jesus that his closest earthly companions have failed him and in a few moments they would betray him and leave him and scatter oh that we too as we see ourselves maybe in this passage and as we see ourselves maybe in some ways like these disciples would not be those who are weary and tired in the faith that we would get up that we would go to work and we would work hard and that we would, we would live out Christ. We would strive for holiness in every part of our lives. That when, tempta- when temptation comes, we would, we would get down on our knees and we would, we would battle in prayer against it. We would have healthy devotional and prayer lives. We would look after our families. We would love our wives and submit to our husbands and we would live the way that Christ intended us to live. But you might say, well, I'm just too tired. Spiritually, I'm just tired. I want to go to sleep. I just want to sit down. Let me tell you this. If that's the, the case and you do that, you'll be a sitting duck for the devil. When you'll be Uh, There you will be not preparing for battle. Yet we should be when our Gethsemane comes. Maybe it has arrived. Maybe it's been. Maybe it's here right now. Maybe it's coming. It's coming if it hasn't already arrived. Well, how do we react? How do we react? How do we react? So as we sort of bring this all to a close, let me pose some questions for us. Let me pose some questions. And the obvious one I think hopefully you should be asking yourselves is this, why Peter, James, and John? Why those three? Well, can I suggest that in Galatians 2 and 9, you don't need to turn there, but the apostle or the apostles state that Cephas, Peter, James, And John, it literally says their names, are the pillars of the church. Maybe that's the reason Jesus brought them alongside him. To teach them what they needed to know to be the leaders of the church. How to battle in prayer. Jesus was about to endure the most horrific trial by taking the cup. He had fought through the greatest battle in prayer, holding on to his father all the while. These three walked beside. They heard, they saw, and and they were there. They were very present. He won the battle. They lost theirs miserably. And I think uh, the lesson from Gethsemane is this for us. That not that our... Uh, our failures is, are the things that uh, identify us. We are not identified by our failures and we will fail and just continue to fail. And that's not how we should think. But that he has won the battle and is the victor. 
And he calls us to join him in his story. In his victories. He will defeat death. The curse will be removed. Sin atoned for. Relation with the Father restored. All because he will be smitten by God. He will bear the sins of the world. Also, he would please the Father. And he would invite us to be his own. And in verse 45 and 46, it says this. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Rise. Let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus tells them to sleep later because he sees Judas and the authorities coming up the hill to that garden on the side of Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives. The hour has arrived. The battle in the garden is won. The flesh is dampened and the will is ready and strengthened and, and, and willing But notice the last verse, rise, let us be going. He invites them to go with him. Why would he do that? Because in verse 57, 56, he knows that they're going to run away. Why did he not just say to them in the garden, guys, just stay here or do something because I'm I'm going. Why did he not do that? He brought them along. How ironic. He knew they were going to abandon him, yet he he pulled them alongside and said, here, rise, we're going. Well, you see, the actions of the disciples in the garden did not lead to Jesus being done with them. He was not done with them. Knowing they would abandon him, he tells Peter in Luke 22 and 32, I prayed for you that your faith may not Fail. And it goes on and it says, And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We may have thought that the three disciples' faith had failed in the garden, but their actions in the garden did not lead to their end. It did not break down or or stop their relationship with Christ because Christ, in just a few moments, will pay for them at the greatest and highest of prices. Even though they are disciples who have fallen to the wayside, he would pay for them and he would say, you are mine. And he knew that they would turn again. They would come back to Christ. He knew that. And Peter was instructed to strengthen his brothers when this happened. You see, this is where I want to finish today, and it's a little bit unusual, probably the way I finished this morning, but this is how it is. The church exists today because Christ bought his people at the highest price. But let's just look at it one step further than that. The church flourished in that day because of what? Why did it flourish in the next uh, number of months? Because of Peter's Testimony at Pentecost. Thousands were brought in 
Because Peter had been paid for at the greatest price and he had seen all that he had seen and he had showed and he had spoken and preached to the multitudes and thousands had been brought into the church. Well, thank God that when we fail, we have an unfailing Savior in Jesus. That he always had the victory. He always had the victory. In the moments where you thought he was on the losing side, he was never there. He was always on the winning side. And so this morning we worship a reliable, strong, and sovereign Savior who we can put our complete trust in. May this morning be a day or maybe it be this moment where you do that for yourself or you recommit your life to him and you hold on again to him. This great and loving and sovereign savior. Let's sing together, shall we, as we finish. Man of sorrows. This wonderful hymn that we see. This walk of Christ as he walks to the cross. So let's stand and sing, Man of Sorrows, Lamb of God.